Well, join me in John chapter 14. You knew that that's where we'd be anyway. John chapter 14, and this really is one of the most personal chapters in all of the scriptures. We're picking up where we left off last time in verses 21 through 24. John 14, verses 21 through 24. Not only personal, but comforting. Comforting. Why? Because each section of this chapter records great promises of hope. Promises of hope from Jesus to his apostles, by extension to us as believers, as Jesus is preparing his apostles for what life will be like for them after he leaves, as they live in a fallen world. So each section of John 14 gives divine comfort, needed assurance that when distress fills our world and hurt pains our soul and fear tempts us to despair, we need not become troubled in heart. It's verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. It's repeated in verse 27. Do not let your heart be troubled. Out of everyone in this world, it is the Christian who should be the most hopeful, right? Confident, confident in our Savior's promises, secured by our sovereign Lord's designs. And yet, what tends to describe the Christian today, what fills our Facebook feeds what occupies our thoughts, what monopolizes our conversations. To use Jesus' words, what fills our heart? And for many of us, the answer is not hope. And it is not joy. It's fear and worry. There's doubt, maybe there's anger, agitation, anxiety. For many, an untroubled heart is that elusive ring always dangling just outside our outstretched hand. The gloom of this world has overshadowed the hope of the gospel. So the question is why? Why has that happened? Why are we filled with distress and not hope? Why are we filled with fear and not joy? Answer, because we have placed our hope and we have placed our joy in things that can never be lasting. And so hope and joy will always be lost. And that has been exposed. We have tied too much happiness to the comforts of this world. We have allowed our affections for the temporal things to root too deep. We have become satisfied with the American dream for too long. We've anchored our hope and our heart in the shifting stands of the here and now rather than in the bedrock of eternal promises. And so you ask me, Patrick, why are we spending so long in John 14? That's why. 
We need this chapter. We need these promises. Again, because out of everyone in this world, we should be the most hopeful. We should be filled with joy. It's what the world needs. A hope-filled Christian with the hope-filled gospel. And so what are we to do? How are, we, how are we to remain hopeful in a spiraling world? How are we to guard our hearts from being filled with angst and worry and anxiety? How can we not become paralyzed in our gospel witness, paralyzed by anger, frustration, bitterness? Jesus gives the answer in John 14. The only way to battle fear is through faith. The only way to battle fear is through faith. Look at verse one. The only way to not let our heart be troubled is to continue it. Believe in God. Rest in God's goodness to his people. That's never changing. Rest in God's faithfulness to his word. Rest in his sovereignty over sin. Rest in the coming judgment, his coming judgment of the wicked. That is coming. We've sung about it, and we'll hear about it in a little bit. Rest in his love for us. But notice, Jesus does not stop there. That's all general faith. It's general faith in the person of God. But then Jesus adds in verse one, believe also from the general faith in God's person to now specific faith that clings to me, Jesus says. Cling, rest, believe in me. Specifically, rest in the promises I will give you for the next 30 verses. The anchor of hope that holds during trouble is the anchor that clings to these specific promises from Jesus to his apostles, to all believers by extension. There's 12 of them. There's 12 of them. We've looked at the first five. That brings us to verse 21, five promises in verses one through 20. In the midst of trial and turmoil and trouble, cling to these bedrock promises. Cling to verses one through seven, the promise that the Father's house is our future home that never changes. Verses eight through 11, that Christ's unity with the Father guarantees our acceptance by the Father. Our future is secure. Cling to verse 12, that the Lord is using us to carry out his gospel work now in the spiraling world. Cling to verses 13 through 15, that we have access to heaven's throne room of grace. To what we looked at last time in verses 16 through 20, we have been given the Holy Spirit forever. We've been given the Holy Spirit forever, to indwell us, to seal us, to strengthen us, equip us. He's our helper to sanctify us. Look at the promise in verse 16. Jesus speaking, I will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, never to leave us. There's a lot the world can take away from us, right? Not the spirit. I'll give you the spirit. That is the spirit of truth, the third member of the Trinity. He abides with you at that time. Jesus speaks. 
But after Christ ascends to the Father, he will be in us. Drop down to verse 20. I am in my Father. The Son is unified to the Father, and you in me through the Holy Spirit. You are unified to me. We're united to the Son, and I, through the Spirit's coming and indwelling, I am in you. All unified together within the Trinity. So why do we not need to let our heart become troubled in this temporal world? Because our life is literally hidden with Christ in God, secured. Each member of the Trinity secures our soul forever. These are astounding promises. They give us hope and joy and assurance and comfort in a troubled world. It brings us to promise number six and seven. In verses 21 through 24, let me read the text. Verse 21, read it with me. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me, here it is, will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Here's the promise of divine love being given to us. Judas not Iscariot, and I'm sure Judas appreciated that. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Spend the rest of our time unpacking promise number six. Promise number six. In this fallen world of pain and heartache and hurt and trouble, be satisfied Why? Be satisfied because you are loved by each member of the Trinity. You are loved by each member of the Trinity. And you see that love becomes the key word in these verses. Up to this point in the first 20 verses, believe has been the key word. So out in verse one, believe in God, believe also in me. See it in verse 11, believe me. Otherwise, believe. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, believe has been the key word. Love has only been used one time. That's verse 15. In these next four verses, love is repeated seven times. Four verses, seven times. Three, uh, four times in verse 21. Two times, verse 23, one time. In verse 24, it's all about love, love. But notice, Jesus does not begin this promise with with God's love for us. It's not where he begins. He'll get there. It's important. It's key. It's not where he starts. He begins with our love for him, our love for him. Notice verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who what? loves me. 
Now look up at the verse 15, very similar language. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So remember what we looked at a few weeks ago. John 14 is what is called a chiasm. So it's a mirror. The beginning is a mirror with the end. It's all moving to a single point. Remember the BLT, right? The bacon of the passage, verses 16 through 20. Everything's driving to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Everything flows out of that. Well, you can see that here. Verse 15, Jesus leading into the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's all flowing into that. And then flowing out of it, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So verse 15, verse 21, they're mirrors of one another, flowing to the promise of the Spirit, flowing out of the promise of the Spirit. Why? Why? Why does Jesus repeat this love, obedience principle in verse 15 and verse 21? Here's the answer. Because Jesus is emphasizing what the Spirit will do in the life of every believer. This is the Spirit's work. The Spirit creates in us a new heart. It's the promise of verses 16 through 20. The Spirit changes our loves, our affections. Love for the world becomes a love for Christ. The Spirit changes our wills. Obedience to the God of this world now becomes obedience to the commands of Christ and the words of the Father. Just notice, Jesus is not commanding obedience. Certainly it's implied. But he's not commanding obedience here. Jesus is explaining the characteristic, the characteristic of the one who has been given the Holy Spirit who's been given, received the promise of verses 16 through 20. How do you know if you have been given the Spirit? How do you know, put it this way, how do you know if you're truly Christ's? That the Spirit indwells you and has sealed you. Here's how. You lovingly obey Jesus. You have an affection for Christ, a love for him. Again, verse 15, if you love me, if the Spirit has truly given you that new heart, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commands and keeps them is the one who has been given my spirit and loves me. So how do we know who a true believer is? What is or who is a true believer? It is the one who loves Christ to the point of following him. That goes against common evangelicalism. It is the one who loves Christ to the point of following him. You love Christ's words. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. We love his word. Believers love his word. Christ's commands are not burdensome. They're a joy. And here's what Jesus is doing at this point in John 14. He is fusing two Old Testament passages together. 
two passages. The first is Deuteronomy 6. Yahweh's description of a true believer. You shall love, you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those who are Yahweh's love him to the point of obedience. Christ now takes that passage. He puts himself into it. He says, if you're Yahweh's, you love me. You love Christ to the point of obedience. Which he then fuses with the promise in Ezekiel 36 and the giving of the Holy Spirit. How are we to love Christ with all of our heart? It's impossible. You can't do that. How do you do that? By the promise of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, I, Yahweh promising this, I will put my spirit within you. Just look at verse 16 in John 14. That's Jesus' promise. I'll ask the Father. He'll send you the spirit. The spirit of truth will be in you. Ezekiel 36 fulfilled. And what will the Spirit do once he indwells his people? He will cause you to walk in my statutes, to love his commands that are not burdensome. He will give you a love for the Lord that overflows in a life of obedience and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the Spirit's work. So what a true believer looks like. You love Christ. You love his word. You cherish his ways. You walk in his commands. Look at verse 23. Jesus will repeat this. If anyone loves me, what's the distinguishing mark? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's repeated in verse 24. He who does not love me, flip side, he who does not love me does not keep my words. So if there's no obedience, there's no love. There's no obedience and no love. It means the spirit has not been given to you. Again, the distinguishing mark of a true believer is spirit-empowered, obedient love. It's no wonder Paul writes, the fruit of the spirit is what? Everyone knows that the fruit of the spirit is love. Love, first and foremost, a love for Christ that overflows to a love for others. Now, why is Jesus adding this caveat to his promises? Why is that? Why is he defining a true Christian here for these remaining 11 apostles? Well, it's because there was one who certainly looked the part, right? There was one who had been with them for three years. One who had walked with Jesus and conversed with Jesus, even ate a meal, at least at the start with Jesus and the apostles. He knew Jesus. He had been associated with Jesus. He preached the gospel of Jesus. And yet he did not love Jesus. He refused to obey Jesus. He hated Jesus. This is obviously Judas. Judas had been dismissed earlier in the night. What you do, do quickly. Betray me. Get this done. 
And so Jesus, right at this moment, is preparing his apostles for the shock they will experience in just a few hours. They do not know what's coming. He's preparing them to see Judas betray him. He's answering the question they don't even know they're going to ask. He's answering their question, how could Judas do this? How could Judas turn on Jesus? How could he betray him? Jesus' answer is Judas never belonged to Christ. Never belonged to Jesus. He never had a love for Jesus. He had never been changed by the Spirit. No love for Christ and no obedience to Christ means no salvation in Christ. And so as we're looking at all of these promises, glorious promises, astounding, we come to a point that we have to check our own heart. Are we truly believers? That's the question. Ask it this way, has the spirit been given to you? And the only answer that will prove that you are Christ is active, loving obedience to Jesus. Every promise of hope in this chapter, every promise is only for those who love Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. These are limited promises. This is not for everyone in the world. But if that is you, notice the glorious promise Jesus gives here from our love for Christ, our spirit-empowered gift, our love for Christ, Jesus now promises the Father's love for us. The Father's love for us. Notice the next phrase in verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. That is a greater love than we could ever give the Lord. It's repeated in the middle of verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. So just let the promise sink in. The father loves you. The father loves you. And this is such a significant phrase because up to this point in John's gospel, we have read about the Father's love. John 3, the Father loves the Son. John 5, the Father loves the Son. John 10, the Father loves me. The Father loves the Son. And that's not shocking. That's expected. The son shares the same eternality as the father and thus the son is eternally worthy of the father's love. It's not shocking for the father to love the son. The son shares the same nature as the father. We see that in verse nine here. He who has seen me has seen the father. So again, the son is worthy by nature of the father's love. The son is perfectly holy in his character. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
That's Jesus's life. There's no sin barrier between him and the Father. And thus there's no barrier between him and the Father's love. That's expected. Of course the Father loves the Son. I don't know about you, but none of those reasons apply to me. None of them. We do not share in the same eternality as the Son. We are creatures. We do not share in the same nature as the Son. We are finite. We do not share in the same holiness as the Son. We are fallen. And yet, Jesus promises us. He promises fallen, finite, sinful creatures. He promises that the Father loves us. In fact, take this even further. Turn to John 17. John 17, verse 23. Verse 23, listen to what Jesus says here. You loved them, Jesus says. The Father loves us, watch now, even as you have loved me. Let that sink in. The Father loves us even as the Father has loved Christ. The son not only promises the father loves us, he's promising us that the father will love us with the same love he has for his son. So united through the spirit, so united are we to Jesus. And you connect to this promise of love, turn back to chapter 14, you connect this promise of love to verses 16 through 20, the giving of the spirit. So united are we through the Spirit's work to Jesus that the Father does not and cannot just love us in some general way. No. We are so united to Christ that the Father must love us with the same love he has for his Son. Don Kistler has put it this way. The most amazing thing is that everyone who is in Christ is loved by the Father to the same extent that Christ himself is loved by the Father. He loves the Son infinitely for the Son is the essence of the Father and the Father loves those for whom the Son died infinitely and then the question, is there any better news to be heard? What's better than that? What calms our troubled heart? What gives us as believers, true believers here in this world, what gives us hope? What gives us joy? It's knowing that the Father loves us with the same infinite love he has for Christ himself. Never to be taken away. One commentator wrote this, we so casually say God loves me. Isn't that so true? We so casually say God loves me. Oh, that the earth shattering ramifications of God's love for you would bore into the depths of your soul. 
God, the creator of the universe, the holy one who dwells above the heavens, loves you. Though there is no reason for him to love you, he has chosen to love you. And even more, to love you as he loves Christ. So let's just stop here for a moment. Consider how deep the Father's love for us actually is. I'll just give you a list here, but seven descriptions of the Father's heart coming love that will always be ours in Christ. Number one, what's the extent of the Father's love? Number one, the Father loves us with an eternal love. The Father loves us with an eternal love. It means this love is unmerited. It means it has been unearned. We did not work for it in any way and thus nothing will ever or can ever remove it from us. It's Ephesians chapter one. Before the foundation of the world in love, he, the father, in love, the father predestined us. There's no time stamp on the father's love for those united to his son. His love for us began, we can't even use that word, but it began before the foundation of the world. It carries into eternity future. On your own time, read Psalm 136, and you'll read this phrase 26 times. This phrase, his loving kindness is everlasting. It's the refrain of the psalm. Every verse, his loving kindness is everlasting forever. Second, the Father loves us with a choosing love a choosing love based upon nothing in you or me. Second Thessalonians 2, brethren beloved by the Lord. How do we know God's love for us? Because God, the Father, God has chosen, selected you from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world for salvation. This is a choosing love. Does God have a general love for us? Yes, but even more, he has a specific love, a saving love for us, a choosing, electing love for us to be with him, with him, satisfied in him forever. Number three, the extent of the Father's love. Third, the Father's love for us is ascending love. Sending love. First John chapter four, no doubt. John thinking back to Jesus' words, even here in John 14, John writes, by this, the love of God, speaking of the Father, by this, the love of the Father was manifested. How? God sent his only son that we might live. The Father sends the Son of His love to extinguish the wrath of His justice for us so that we might live, live with Him. So this is merciful love, gracious love, giving, sending love for. The Father's love for us is a proactive and propitiating love. 
proactive and propitiating. John just continues in the next verse, 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Tell me, John, what is love? Not that we loved God. No, the Father does not wait for us to love him. That's not divine love, no. Here's divine love. Here's the Father's love. He loved us, initiated this, and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice to assuage his wrath for our sins. Father's love is proactive. Father's love is wrath-exhausting, saving love. Number five, Father's love is regenerating love. It's new creature love, heart-changing. It's Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. His great love with which he loved us. Paul's just piling on the, the word love here. He doesn't have to add that. He doesn't have to add great. He doesn't have to add the word loved us again, but he wants to. He's showing us the greatness of this love because of his great love with which he loved us. What did he do? Out of love. He made us alive. He gave us a new heart. He resurrected us from spiritual death and made us together, resurrected us to be together with Christ. So he moves us out of the domain of spiritual death and transfers us into the realm of eternal life, all because of love, unearned, unmerited. Number six. Father loves us with an adoptive love, an adoptive love. 1 John 3. John's amazed here. He says, see how great. Be shocked. See how great. Don't take this for granted. Don't become so accustomed to this idea. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. How great is this love? Here it is. That we would be called children of God how great this love is. He adopts us into his family. So much so that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All, undes all undeserved. And then seventh, the Father has a preserving love. A preserving love for us. Romans 8 in all these things, what things? What things? All these things. Well, think about these things as our world spirals down. The things of verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all of these things. Yet for us who are Christ, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. God's love sustains our faith. And then added, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. It's preserving eternity past into eternity future. You can add more to this list, but the extent, the depth, at least is summarized here. 
the depth of the Father's love for us. He loves us with an eternal choosing, sending, propitiating, regenerating, adopting, preserving love. So let me quote Kistler again. Is there any better news to be heard? We're loved by the Father. And so when trials come, when trouble wants to enter a heart, fear begins to well up on the inside, Remember who you are in Christ. You are loved by the Father. Though transcendent, he is not indifferent to our worries. Though clothed in majesty and splendor, he is not unaware, he's not aloof to the sorrows we face in this world. He promises to love us through all of them. All of them. Again, verse 23, he who loves me will be promised, will be loved by My father, verse 24, my father will love him. But that's not where the promise ends. Finish verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my father and, and? What else is there? Are you telling me there is more love that we will be given? more love that we can find security in, more love we will experience. Yes, this is now the son's love for us. The son's love for us. And I will love him. So the same love that sacrificed a face-to-face relationship with his father now is ours. Christ loves us. The love that moved Christ to incarnate himself in the frailty of man, that love is ours. The love that chose death and suffering and wrath, that love is ours. Connect it back to verse 18. Jesus' promise, I will not leave you as unloved orphans. I love you. My Father loves you. I will come to you. I'll send my Spirit. The Spirit loves you. Never are we without the love of our Savior. My sacrificing love will never leave you. My sustaining love will always be upon you. My guarding love will always be yours. one of the top two hymns that I love, the love of God, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above, the love of the Father and of the Son, the love of the Spirit who indwells us, to write the love of the triune God for us would drain the ocean dry or could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky there is no higher love that we could ever be given there is no deeper love we could ever imagined we are loved by the father son and holy spirit that's the promise let's bring some implication here what's some application What does this mean? 
Well, notice, I'll give you four. Number one, implications of this love from the Father, Son, and Spirit. Heart calming. Number one, the Trinity's love for us means that we must not measure God's love by the absence or presence of trials. We must not measure God's love for us by the absence or presence of trials. That is always the knee jerk, isn't it? The presence of trouble is no indication that God has withdrawn his love from us. Just think of Christ. That was his entire life. Trouble. The Father always loved him. Presence of trial is no indication the Father has withdrawn his love from us. The flip side is also true. The absence of trouble is no indication that God's, God loves us anymore. That's the American idea. If you have ease and you have comfort and you've been blessed financially, temporally, health-wise, God loves you. We don't measure God's love that way. We don't measure God's love by trial. Here's how we measure God's love for us. We measure it by the son he has sent and the salvation he has secured for us and the spirit he has given to us. And all of that does not ever flow and flow, does not come and go. Second application. Number two here based upon this promise of divine love. God's love for us means that we do not need to win the world's love. We do not need to win the world's love. At no point, no point do we need to court the world's favor, ever. Never do we need to compromise to win the world's applause or acceptance. We have a better love than the world's love. World's love is fickle. God's love is faithful. We have a more lasting love than the world's love. We have a more satisfying and superior love than any love this world can offer. And again, no doubt, John is thinking of this as he writes 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Why? Because the world is what? passing away in all of its lusts, all of its loves. It's all passing away. But the one who does the will of God, the one who has a love for Christ overflowing into obedience, the one who does the will of God lives for how long? Forever. We need not win the world's love. And by the way, we can't. Can't. Number three, Third implication. We can rest assured that no trouble, no trial will ever, we ever face will occur outside of God's love for us. So we can rest assured that no trouble we will ever face occurs outside of God's love for us. It's the whole, whole flow of John 14. Verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because of verse 21, you are loved by the Father and I love you. That's the flow. 
And so each trial and each heartache and sorrow and hurt, every pain, they're actually held by the Father's loving hands as he holds us in his loving hand. No trouble we will ever face occurs outside of God's love for us. He knows what is best. And then number four, we end where we started. Because God loves us, we can be the most hopeful and joyful people within this fallen world. We can be satisfied. We can be satisfied. Why? Because we are loved by each member of the Trinity. Leads into a seventh promise. Let me just give it to you and we're done. Promise number seven, it builds on this because each member of the Trinity loves us. He makes his home with us. So promise number seven, be secure because each member of the Trinity has made his home in us. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, we will come to the believer. Who's the we? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We will come to the believer and make our abode, our home, our dwelling with him. So God's love does not remain on the outside God's love even enters inside and he makes his home with us. The extent of God's love for us is amazing. We cannot fully understand that. It is the greatest news that we could hear. We'll pick it up at this point next week. Father, uh, the promises that you continue to give to us through your son in this chapter are astounding. And we need to hear these promises now. Lord, for the faith that may be teetering, because what is being experienced, strengthen that faith. Cause us to cling, in faith, cling to these promises, to walk by faith and not by sight, to find that hope and that joy and what is lasting. Give us, Lord, a hope and a joy that this world needs to see because it is the hope and joy of your gospel. And Spirit, use that gospel to change those hearts of unbelievers that they too can glory in you and cling to these same promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.